so much for joining us uh, for this sold-out 5 by 15 event with Carol Cadwallader, Luke Harding, and Oliver Bullo. Um, tonight, it really is our great honor to be joined by not one, not two, but three award-winning and acclaimed journalists um, whose work has dominated the news headlines around the world. So they're going to be discussing dark data, dark money, and um, Putin's Russia, and it's certainly very topical and timely. So let me introduce our speakers in a little bit more detail before we start. So in a series of groundbreaking articles for The Guardian, Carol Cadwallader exposed the fake news ecosystem that threatens our democracy, and she's made the front pages and set the news agenda through her investigations into Cambridge Analytica, for which she was awarded the 2018 Orwell Prize for Journalism. Luke Harding's recent acclaimed books include Collusion, Secret Meetings, Dirty Money, and How Russia Helped Donald Trump Win, and A Very Expensive Poison About the Murder of Alexander Litvinenko. He's written about Edward Snowden and about WikiLeaks, and he was himself expelled from Moscow when he was the Guardian bureau chief. Oliver Bullo is our chair this evening, um, but we also hope that he will share some of his stories from his incredible new book, Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How We Can Take It Back, which looks at the international flow of money and the new lawless, stateless, super-rich. And please join with me to welcome to the stage Carol, Luke and Oliver. Hello, everyone. The, the subtitle to this event... Um, which Daisy didn't mention, was Dark Data, Dark Money, Putin's Russia, How British Democracy is Under Assault. Um, British democracy has been under assault many times, and anyone who's studied GCSE history knows that we're very proud of the fact that we always win. Um, um, <laughs> we're the good guys, remember, um, <laughs> always. Um, we're under assault at the moment from a threat which is different in scope and nature from any that we've faced before. This is not a, a country with an army. It is not a leader um, with a sort of powerful message. This is a, a secret, uh, hidden foe, dark money and dark data. It's new and unprecedented. We can't see it and we cannot feel it. It is the anonymous power of the wealthy and the unscrupulous. Um, in my book, Moneyland, which Daisy mentioned, I invented a country, Moneyland, in order to give it a face. Because, uh, certainly according to the best recent research, between 8 and 10% of all the money in the world is out there somewhere, what we call offshore. And what offshore really means is elsewhere. It means nowhere in particular. It's not here, but it isn't anywhere else either. 8 and 10% of the country in the world makes it the third largest economy in the world after the United States and China. It is a serious threat that we are facing, and we are woefully unprepared to face it. It is appropriate, however, that we're talking about it in London because we invented it. Um, uh, some of you, you all look like an astonishingly well-read and well-informed audience, and some of you may remember a quote from Dean Acheson, who used to be the Secretary of State of the United States. In 1962, at a speech in West Point, he said, Great Britain has lost an empire and has not yet found a role. It hurt at the time because it was true, but it was also ironic because at the time, in December 1962, in the city of London, just a little way from here, um, a group of very talented and driven bankers was inventing something called the Eurobond. And the Eurobond gave Britain a role. It created offshore. It made, made us the clearinghouse, the great wholesaler for the world's hidden money. And we have been making a lot of money from it ever since. But sadly, the consequences have been horrendous. 
it began as just a vehicle for Western wealthy tax dodgers. At the time, tax rates were very high. There was a lot of demand. But it became a vehicle and its, and its successors, the various offshore instruments invented in the decades since, not just for Western wealthy tax dodgers, what I call naughty bad money. It also became for evil bad money, the money of kleptocrats, the likes of Ferdinand Marcus from the Philippines, Sonny Abacha from Nigeria, and of course, as we'll hear from Luke later, from Vladimir Putin in Russia. Um, the money began wanting to avoid taxation, and now it wishes to avoid exposure. It is hidden, but like a malevolent poltergeist, though we can't see it and we can't touch it, it can see us and it can touch us. Um, it, its owners are manifold. There are thousands, millions of them. They have many interests, many languages, many religions, many faces, but they all have one abiding interest, which is they do not wish to be exposed. And that means, inevitably, that they are enemies of democracy. Democracy depends on transparency, on equality before the law. People whose assets do not wish to be exposed are therefore its enemy, and that is the enemy that we face. Luke's focus is on uh, many things, but particularly Russia, the country that um, was so enthusiastic about his reporting that it asked him to leave. Um, <laughs> um, uh, Russia is often in the headlines. Last week it was in the headlines for a new money laundering scandal, the latest of many, at Danske Bank's Estonian branch, uh, which between 2007 and 2015 laundered 200 billion euros. Um, it's quite difficult to get your head around quite how much money that is, but if the HSBC Mexican scandal was a second-hand Ford Focus, the Danske Bank Estonian scandal was in a Ferrari F60 supercar. It is possibly the biggest money laundering scandal in the world and only represents the tip of the iceberg of money that's been pouring out of Russia and is all around us, particularly in this part of town. Carol, you also know her work, focuses above all on US money. Um, in the US elections, the most recent one, more than $100 million was spent without any disclosure at all of where it came from. Um, and that's just the tip of it. We're also talking about dark data, the use of data by Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and all the other US players who wish to influence us without us knowing who they are. I'm sure that you are all, um, because you look like the kind of intelligent people who should be Harry Potter fans. Um, in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, Arthur Weasley, who I think is my favorite character in the entire Harry Potter canon, scolds his daughter Ginny because she's trusted a diary that turned out to be possessed by Lord Voldemort. And he says, how many times do I have to tell you Ginny, never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. Um, if you take away any message from this evening, I hope it's that one. But <laughs> there will be many, many more because you are going to hear some astonishing revelations from two of the greatest journalists in the business. We're going to start with Carol. Carol, you have recently won the Orwell Prize, obviously, and broken some stories that have knocked how much money off the value of Facebook? Um. <laughs> we were talking earlier, if only she'd been a Russian journalist, she'd have shorted the stock beforehand. Um, Car <laughs> Carol, how did you get into this game? Um, so, yeah, so I, it, it, it was very, very um, uh, deliberately and accidentally, and... Um, and I, I really, it, it, it's, it was quite interesting hearing you talk then and, and have that introduction about the sort of the darkness of this and also what's at stake. And I feel at times I really kind of, you know, I, I, I sort of get away from that and it really does bring it back 
when I think about where, where I started this and how dark it just, this dark world I suddenly accidentally slipped into. And that was right in front of me. It was on my computer. It was just uh, where I went down. A, a sequence of events made me, I just started searching some things online. And this was just a few days after Trump had been elected. And I started looking at the issue of fake news. And I started out just through, I had this a query about how Google search worked. And I started putting in different search terms into Google. And it was just suddenly like entering dystopia. Because um, one of the first ones I did was about Jews. And I just asked a question of Google, because that's what you do. I started asking a question. And I said, are Jews? And Google just gave me the suggestion of, are Jews evil? And I hadn't asked. It wasn't a question I had ever thought to ask, but I was like, okay, well, Google's suggesting this. And so I just clicked return, and I got an entire page of results, every single one of which said, yes, Jews are evil. And the top result was from Stormfront, which was a Nazi website. I didn't even know there was such a thing as Nazi websites at the time. And then, more astonishingly, at the bottom of the page, there was sort of other things you might be interested in searching. You know, it gives you those suggestions. And it was like, did the Holocaust happen? Was the Holocaust a fake? Is Hitler bad? You know, it was, it was the, this whole... And so I just started clicking on them. And, and there, there was no way back. And, and then I, I started doing it with other searches, and I was finding exactly the same thing, which is, are women... And it, again, it gave me evil. And again, I got a whole thing of... And this one, they put actually had their little box at the top of Google when they're really, really certain of the answer. And in this one, it was like, definitive. It was like, yes, women are evil because they have a little bit of prostitute in them. And that was its definitive answer. <laughs> and um, we are in a different place now. I mean, you, you know, I don't, you remember what it was like after Trump had been elected and, it, it, you know, we'd had Brexit. It just, there was just things going on out of kilter, it felt, in the world. And I was suddenly aware of that actually things were really out of kilter and weird things were going online. And I very quickly found this academic in America called um, Jonathan Albright. And he had just... It was the very first research into fake news and what was happening on the internet. And he'd found a, a, a list of fake news sites. And, he'd, he, and he looked at every single link going in and out of them. And he did a network chart of it. And he'd just done this. And he was... We got, we had the late, he was in the States and I was in London and we had this sort of very late night telephone call and we really did just quite freak each other out because he was like, it's crazy, it's crazy, it's like, it's like cancer and it, it's taken over the internet and it's suffocating, it's suffocating. He's saying, look, you can see it's suffocating like the New York Times and the Guardian and it's growing, every piece of outrage is making it grow. And, and I said, so is that, and is that why I'm seeing the results that I'm seeing? You know, is that he was looking at the inputs and essentially I was looking at the outputs. And, and he said, yes, you know, this, there, it was, it was, there were forces at work uh, which had uh, undermined, found a way to gain Google's algorithm. And it was producing this kind of results. And, and we also know this was also, you know, what was going on in Facebook as well. And th th this, it, you know, that was the very start of the reporting of this story. And it's still, it's the kind of golden thread which runs through it, which is the complete unaccountability of the tech platforms. 
and the inability to get answers from them. And the, you know, the, 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 the thing of, it was so fascinating to me about the limits of journalism. So this was what we've seen in the reporting of this, in particular with Facebook, is that you could not get answers. And the way that they just tried to close the story down, you know, taking these different tactics. And so it, that, that kicked off at the time with Google. They, I, I did about five or six stories, and then they came after me very hard, and they came after the newspaper very hard on, and I always like to tell the story, on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a big complaint from Google on Christmas Eve, the um, one day of the year that most senior editors uh, can take off, because there's not a paper not on Sunday. And me and Jill Phillips, who is the uh, Guardian's head of legal, who we've all had um, many dealings with, uh, were having to deal with this at sort of 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve. So that was, that gives you sort of a, 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 a sampling, a flavour of, of what it's been like. But this, sorry, I, I should, let, I should um, wrap up, but, but to, to go forward, it's that the same thing happened with Facebook with this story. And um, that, that you know, a, a huge amount of work went into getting Christopher Wiley out and on the record. And um, the day before publication, we had a letter from Facebook threatening to sue us. And this was after we'd had multiple threats from Cambridge Analytica. And um, it was with great pleasure that we, <laughs> we decided to ignore it. And, um, and that is, you know, it really does, um, is testament to why well-funded news organisations are so important. And, um, and why all of you being here and paying an interest and attention to this is so important. So anyway, thanks very much for coming, that's all I can say. There's a, <laughs> there's a great line in, in, in the first article you wrote on this. I, I'm not going to quote it because I don't want to do that quote, but essentially your, your point is that we tend to think of the internet as a sort of almost an ocean through which we swim. It's a sort of neutral, not necessarily benign, but a neutral environment that we swim through like fish, but it's designed and it's someone has designed it, and there is an intelligence behind it that we cannot, we can't see where it keeps and its, its brain. And it's private. Yeah. And that's the thing, because, you know, I think I, it, one of the things I discovered when I had this sort of ugly threat made last year, and um, you think that the Internet's a sort of public place, and so therefore it's, it's, um, it, it, it's the same as having something on the street outside your house, but it's not, it's because it's, you can't get it off there. So, you know, when I had sort of this sort of death threat from Aaron Banks, there was nothing you could do about it. People complaining to Twitter, asking them to take it down. And, you, you know, the, you couldn't. It was only when we actually, um, uh, a senior editor, you know, um, went to them and, and petitioned them to take it down that it came. But Twitter did absolutely nothing. So, Luke, you're, you're sort of now working on similar material from a different angle to Carol, but you started also in a different place. Let's, let's hear your... The Luke journey. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean it, it's fascinating listening to Carol because we did sort of meet in the middle, but from completely different directions. Because um, so, hello everybody. Um, I, I, I'm I'm a sort of career foreign correspondent at the Guardian, and I um, had, had been in Delhi. I'd been in Berlin. Uh, I was posted to Moscow in early 2007, um, and thinking rather kind of naively that, that Russia under Vladimir Putin at that point in his sort of second presidential term was. Uh, a sort of semi-democracy heading kind of very trundling in the right direction. And in fact, what, what I discovered was that really um, Putin had, had converted Russia into a, what you might call a kind of audacious 
kleptocracy. Um, and it was a kind of full-blown espionage state run by a group of now 60-something former KGB officers with a similar mindset uh, who regarded the United States as uh, what's called in Russian the kind of glavny protivnik, the, the kind of main adversary, and the UK was a kind of, was a sort of little protivnik, a little adversary. Um, and um, what was interesting was that, that um, I had some first-hand experiences of kind of espionage about how the FSB, the successor organization to the KGB, how it works. Um, and it was made pretty clear to me that the kind of stories I was writing for The Guardian were really unpopular. I mean, I, I for example, I tried to answer the question, how much money does Vladimir Putin have? Uh, and it, not an easy question, but you, you would think in a kind of Cartesian universe that was answerable. Um, and um, you, there, were sort of, there were sort of leaks from inside the kind of presidential administration saying basically everybody inside the Russian elite knows that Vladimir Putin is the richest man in the world. Uh, and that if you, go to, if you go to Geneva and go to sort of Credit Suisse and say, have you got a bank account in the name of Mr. Mr. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, that they will kind of go, oh, well, terribly sorry, we haven't got anything for you, go away. Uh, and of course, the way it works is that, that Putin presides over a uh, system of oligarchs, of proxies, um, who together control... No one knows, but, but 200, 300, 400, 500 billion dollars. And, and this money can be used for, um, to, it can be stashed on kind of personal projects like buying a yacht or a castle or a hotel, or political projects like buying a World Cup, or indeed subverting uh, uh, an election. The, the World Cup story I was working on when I was expelled in 2011, so I never quite got the answer to that one. Um, but, Spoiler, but, he, he did. <laughs> okay. Um, and so th th this was my kind of trajectory to kind of look at the dark money. And, and what was interesting was watching a lot of the kind of uh, the things we now understand, which have happened internationally, being kind of perfected domestically. So, so trolls. Um, I, I got kind of early abuse from trolls sort of 10 years ago. Uh, at that point, written in, in kind of really bad English by someone called Sergei, you know, who was obviously a kind of patrol in St. Petersburg. And, and, and now, if you kind of fast forward, I get, you know, the Russian trolls writing good English, and, and they're not Sergei anymore, they're Brian from Take Back Control, or, 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 or Sheila from, you know, Stop the War Room, or something like this. And um, it was interesting to see how these techniques were, were being played out. And I was kicked out in 2011, and, and basically followed this kind of path of, of espionage as it went on the road. So I, I was investigating the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. Um, I, I got to know Litvinenko's widow in London. I, I met and interviewed the two killers in Moscow. Uh, and I was, I was looking at um, a whole sort of series of things, so kind of exotic murder, but also these kind of subversion techniques, which have kind of a long KGB pedigree. And, and then, of course, in, in, in 2016, someone called Donald Trump comes along, um, this crazy guy who, who no one thinks is going to win, but who has these kind of, these strange, mysterious, opaque links with Moscow, with Russia, with, with money from the former Eastern Europe, going back three, four decades. And, and as he kind of climbed, we became more and more interested in the, in, in the question of what these financial ties might be. Um, and there was one story in particular I was looking at, which was um, to do with Deutsche Bank, 
Now, now Trump was multiply bust in the 1990s, um, and over the last sort of 15 years, only, only this German bank has been willing to lend to him. And in 2008, something really weird happened, which was that there was a financial crisis. Trump owed Deutsche Bank $45 million. Um, he didn't pay it. Deutsche Bank sued him. <clears throat> Trump countersued, and he said he, w- he wasn't going to pay anything back because Deutsche Bank had co-created the financial crash. And by the way, it owed him $3 billion. Uh, and I- I've read his, his, I mean, you know, you know his re- it's the most completely frivolous thing, document you've ever seen in your life. And what was strange was what happened after that, <clears throat> which was that um, he lost the case, and then very quietly, about a year later, Deutsche Bank lent Donald Trump another $300 million. Uh, and we talked to executives inside Deutsche Bank, and we said, uh, is this normal? Someone defaults on $45 million, and then you give them, and they sue you and say they're not going to pay anything, then you give them $300 million more. And is, there's no one in the audience under the age of 16, is there? No, okay, right. And the answer we got from our sources deep inside Deutsche Bank was, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, and, in other words, this was not normal. This was deeply suspicious for people inside the bank. Um, and so, basically, uh, Trump won. Uh, and at the end of 2016, uh, I and a colleague went to go and see someone called Christopher Steele, uh, who was... Uh, former MI6 officer, he spent 22 years working with British intelligence, specialising in Soviet and Russian espionage. Um, and, and we met, actually not very far from here, in, in Victoria, where his office is based. Um, at that point, no one really knew who Christopher Steele was. He, he, was, he was someone behind the scenes, uh, known just, just to a few people. And we, we, we sat and we had a drink, and, and uh, I kind of realised that within about five, ten minutes, I, I told... Chris, more or less everything of all of our secret investigations. And he, like, he, like the good former spook he was, had told me absolutely nothing, you know. <laughs> so I'd kind of gone, you know, you, you want to find out what a journalist knows, you buy them a drink, you sit back, you don't say anything, they go blah, 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 blah. You write it all down, monetize it, or whatever. Um, and so, so he didn't say very much, but he just said one thing. I mean, I'm not quoting verbatim, but this is more or less what he intimated which was very gnomic, gnomic, gnomic. Uh, and essentially he said, you know, keep going. You're on the right lines. Uh, follow the money with Donald Trump. And follow the sex, w- which was a bit nonplussing because I've done a lot of investigations, Panama Papers, Snowden Files, you know, WikiLeaks. But following sex, I'm not sure how one does that as an investigative journalist. But, but no- nonetheless, th- that was kind of the challenge for us. Uh, and then, of course, three weeks later... It turned out that, that Steele had, had secretly been compiling what, what is now known as the Trump dossier, had discovered these um, apocalyptic, life-changing connections between Donald Trump and Russia, and, and was being told by his secret sources, uh, with, with whom he had worked on previous investigations and who, who had, had been reliable in the past, that, that the Kremlin had been cultivating and assisting Donald Trump for at least five years in what... I think by any standard is, is arguably the, 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 the greatest uh, and most consequential espionage operation of all time. And I can keep going, but let's... let's, you know, let's. I'm struggling to think how to follow that. So, um, so that was the natural pause. So right? we have an, an, an alliance, if only an alliance of convenience between dark data, dark power stemming from U.S. industry 
and dark money, dark power stemming from the Kremlin, both of which are opposed to exposure, obviously, both of which like influence because wealthy people like influence. Um, have we been, it's interesting today, um, many of you may have seen the story in, in The Guardian and possibly elsewhere that Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club, was denied residency in Switzerland for security reasons. Um, I'm not in any way intimating anything against Roman Abramovich, who is a wholly upstanding citizen um, <laughs> of wherever he's a citizen of at the moment. But um, <laughs> do we think we've been too complacent here in Britain? Have we basically said it's fine... We're a lovely country, no one can mean us any harm. I, I mean, I, I think we've been fantastically complacent. Um, and it, it's interesting. Um, I, I, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. I mean, the, the Livinienko case, which, which I track very closely, um, it, was, it was kind of scrupal, but, but 10 years ago, it was the same. Two bungling assassins who flew in with a small transportable poison. Um, that, that they were pretty incompetent. They took three attempts. They, they left a trail of radiation all around central London. Uh, other people could very easily have been killed, as they were with Skripal. Um, and the, the um, reaction from the government, I mean, there was some reaction from Gordon Brown, um, uh, but, but essentially when, when the coalition came in with, with David Cameron, there was a kind of view that actually Russian money was too uh, essential to the city of London, to, to private schools, to sushi bars, to lawyers, to accountants, to British football, etc., that we couldn't do without it. And that that there could be some kind of pragmatic way round the Livinienko case while negotiating sort of better relations with Moscow. And it completely kind of misunderstood the nature of the Russian state, which is essentially under Putin is revisionist. Putin's trying to reshape the world to Moscow's advantage and, and actually, as we now know, to subvert Western democracy. And it was... There are, I mean, our politics has been, it's been so turbulent, but, and, and there have been very, very, very many cringeworthy moments, but I can't help but think of... Um, uh, David Cameron in 2012 at the London Olympics with Vladimir Putin watching the judo together with these kind of rictus smiles. Uh, and um, th this reset failed. Um, uh, someone called Theresa May blocked a public inquiry into the murder of Litvinenko because she said it might affect international relations. In other words, piss off Russia. Um, and of course... The message from that was to carry on, which is why we've had Skripal and a series of other um, unexplained murders of, of, of Russian opponents of the regime living here. And, and just on Abramovich and the, the oligarchs, until relatively recently, until very recently, really, really only after Skripal, they have been able to um, um, coexist in both worlds. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. At home, they are super patriots. They, they are loyal Kremlin functionaries. Um, uh, Abramovich, let's be clear, he denies all wrongdoing, but Abr Abramovich is, is a extremely powerful person at, at, at home. Um, and so, so in this mood of hyper-patriotism inside Russia, where, where state television is uh, an absolute kind of frenzied attack on American decadence, on British hypocrisy, on German perfidiousness, uh, you've got all of these oligarchs lining up behind Putin while simultaneously living here or having their assets here, and their kids here, and their wives here, and their mistresses here. Um, and I, 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 found that, um, I find that remarkable. Um, and it's very hard to, to make billions of dollars in, in the nihilistic, um, post-legal or non-legal world of, of Putin's Russia 
uh, honestly. So we were talking about British democracy being under assault. Um, Carol, this um, is something you have obviously specialised in and your findings have been extraordinary. Um, obviously, a lot of it was focused on the referendum. It was a sort of a one-off event. It, it had particular circumstances around it and particular peculiarities. When we say British democracy is under assault, what, what British democracy is under assault, what do we mean? What does that mean? Well, it just doesn't function anymore. So British democracy is dead, as far as I'm concerned, because our laws are hopeless. <laughs> they just don't work anymore. And we know that. Half of Parliament knows that. There's been recommendations made. But... Um, call a snap election now and I have absolutely zero confidence in the outcome anymore because our, our laws they, 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 what happened in the 19th century we had a, there was a whole series of, of terrible elections which were just bought by rich men with bundles of money you know the, the, the sort of height of the rotten boroughs and and you could just go around and sling some cash and get people drunk and like all the rest of it. Like that Blackadder episode when there's one voter in a Daxon for <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and, um, and so what happened was they, you know, they, they came up with some more laws. And all of the laws were around controlling the money which is spent in elections. And that's the absolute foundation of the way that we conduct our elections is that we, we believe in a level playing field and that both sides should spend the same amount of money and not too much money. And, um, and that worked. And, you know, those were gradually updated. And what happened, what came along, is that all electioneering now has gone online. And this has only happened in the space of half a decade. It's, it's gone online. It's now going through the tech platforms, predominantly through Facebook. And there's absolutely no control. We have no idea how much money is being spent, um, who, who it's, who's being targeted, what data is being used to target them, and we still don't. And so one of the, one of the hugely frustrating things for me is, and, and should be for everybody, but anyway, is that, um, so there, there was an article, actually I'm going to refer to this, there was an article yesterday in the New Yorker, very good, and it had in the, the way down, in America, the Trump-Russia scandal is taken very seriously, and um, there's a lot of alarm about it, whereas here, What's gone on feels to me like it's more like it's being treated like a sideshow. But in that article, they say the thing is about it is the question of uh, collusion, collaboration between the Trump campaign and between Russia is that Facebook will have some of those answers. So in terms of the, 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 the who was targeted and how, we know that the data flows in Facebook are going to tell some sort of story. And it's the same for the referendum in that how, how much money was spent, who was targeted, the things that we're looking at, the electoral crimes that we know were committed, but also the question of outside interference. But Facebook will not answer those questions, and the contempt that they have shown to British lawmakers is completely gobsmacking. Um, and, and Mark Zuckerberg has simply refused to come to Britain and answer these questions to Parliament. And, I, I, I mean, I, I feel quite extremist about it in, in that Facebook is a foreign company. It is literally interfering in our election, and it is unaccountable to British lawmakers. So I, I, I feel that if that is the case, well, then they shouldn't be allowed to operate here. It shouldn't, shouldn't actually, we shouldn't allow electioneering um, in elections on Facebook at all. It's quite, it's quite extremist. When you but say they're interfering, how do you, how do you mean... 
Because they're, 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 they're a foreign company and we have strict, we have strict controls over um, foreigners spending money or having influence in our elections. It's a, it's a really, really key facet of our national security. And we have no idea what influence they had. Um, but we do know that they provided the technology for illegal money to be funneled into these campaigns. So some of the, the investigations that have concluded, so for example, the fact that we know that um, um, £700,000 was deliberately overspent by the official Vote Leave campaign, that has now been proven. We do know that that happened. And the Electoral Commission has found for it. But that was just enabled by Facebook. It's only because of, it's only because, um, of that. So they, 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 they facilitated it. They facilitated a crime. Now, your, Luke, your latest book, Collusion, I believe the paperback, is out next week? Today. Today. <laughs> There's a clue in the title, um, Collusion, <laughs> about what it's about. Um, obviously, it focuses on Trump and Russia and, more broadly, the Manafort Ukraine and everything. Do you see parallels with what's been, what happened in America with what happened, happened here? Do we think it's just we, it's better reported in America so we know more about it? Is that, is that what the situation is? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating to hear Carol um, talk about this, but I think what we, we have to understand a couple of things. One is that the, the, the Russian attempts to influence Brexit uh, and Russian uh, attempts to influence the outcome of the United States election in 2016 uh, were, were sort of running in parallel. Um, I mean, that's the first point. The second point is, is that actually we need to kind of contextualise a bit, a bit here because w what's been going on are actually kind of classic KGB tactics sort of updated uh, for the age of Facebook and Twitter and, and social media and so on. Um, and if you, if you go back to the kind of Cold War... Um, the, if you read the kind of the, the secret um, memos leaked by Oleg Gordievsky, um, who was who the most, most significant kind of British agent during that period, um, and who's the subject of the great new book by Ben McIntyre, The Spy, Spy and the Traitor, um, it's sort of clear that the KGB invested a great deal of time and effort in the 1980s trying to um, undermine um, Thatcher and Reagan to portray them as warmongers um, to, to influence public opinion in, in, in the US and in Western Europe more generally, with, with pretty visible results. I mean, they just never got the reach. They could never do it successfully. But the method was there. It was called active measures, essentially. Um, and um, so this sort of, there was a special department inside the KGB set up to try and subvert Western democracies and at that point to funnel money to communist parties. Uh, essentially. So there's nothing new about this game, but what, what has happened is, is that the, the, the Putin regime, I think quicker than any other sort of postmodern authoritarian power, has wised up to, to what Carol's talking about, to the unaccountability and the exploitability of social media, um, and has been setting up troll factories, has got this um, international uh, propaganda channel, sort of Russia Today, um, and is sort of superbly good at that, and also has been doing old-fashioned kind of cultivation of key people involved in these, in these, in these uh, stories. Now, I'm not saying that Vladimir Putin is a kind of evil genius sitting on a black throne, sort of flicking up a, 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 you know, a kind of a board and then pressing red buttons so things happen here, here, and here. He's not, but he is someone who presides over a, a pretty well-resourced and extensive um, international kind of espionage cadre who, who do things, and one of the things they try and do is to get close to the protagonists. So we, we've seen multiple attempts to kind of cultivate Donald Trump, 
beginning in 1987, uh, when Trump was invited to um, Moscow um, by the Soviet government. You, you read the, the secret KGB memos from that period, um, and there's a wonderful personality questionnaire circulated from Moscow to, to the heads of the KGB abroad. And it says the kind of people we're looking to cultivate, especially in America, are vain, narcissistic, greedy, corruptible, uh, sexually profligate, unfaithful, oh, and poor analysts. Uh, and you look at this and you think, you know, Trump is absolutely off the scale. I mean, he is, he is the KGB's dream candidate, dream candidate. Um, and... Um, and the reverse, sort of the reverse periods of engagement, that is one. Uh, there are others from sort of 2013 onwards. And then massively, as we know, from, from late 2015, early 2016, where, where a whole series of Russian emissaries are meeting Trump, uh, are meeting Trump Jr., are, are meeting Paul Manafort, the campaign manager, are phoning um, uh, Michael Flynn, the national security advisor, and so on. Meanwhile, and, and some of this espionage is going on in London. Uh, meanwhile, we have... Um, Alexander Yakovenko, the Russian ambassador in London, um, uh, kind of almost playing footsie with Aaron Banks, Carol's dear friend, um, the, the man behind EU, who, who had multiple, multiple meetings. First of all, it was one, then it was two, then it was three, then it was four. I think Carol reported 11. She, she can talk about that in a minute. Um, um, all the way in the run-up to, to the, the, the vote. And for me, the big question is, you know, Aaron Banks donated nine million pounds to Leave EU. It's the biggest donation in British political history. He he says this came from his own resources, but has been unable to explain what precisely those resources were, or unwilling to explain. And meanwhile, um, we know that Yakovenko was cultivating banks. They were going drinking together. They were meeting in the embassy. They were having lunch, multiple lunches. And we we got hold of one document that was published that we published um, uh, last month, which was a a presentation um, offered to, to by Yakubenko to Aaron Banks um, the same week that Leave EU um, was launched. Uh, and it's a seven-point sort of PowerPoint, um, seven-page PowerPoint. Um, and, you know, the thing about the KGB is they don't do subtle. Okay, so on the front page are a whole load of gold bars, like, you know, piles and piles of gold bars with the Russian flag. It's, it's a lucrative, ins- you know, for special people only, gold deal being offered by the ambassador to Aaron Banks. He says he didn't take it. Um, and so he was offered gold, he was offered diamonds, he was offered more gold. Why would the Russians want to do that? It's a good question, Carol. Um, I have a question. You didn't publish the image from that, did you? We, we did, we did. Oh, you did, you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you may have been on holiday. It's <laughs> so, your first holiday in a year. So Aaron, I, um, Aaron Banks has a, a complaint when you report things and when other people report things. You are, and I quote, a Ramona, and you are just not prepared to accept the sovereign democratic will of the people. It's an issue that we do need to raise because perhaps there are elements of the seizing on the Russia story in the United States and, and, and in this country in which we are essentially saying we can't accept that the Americans have elected Trump and we can't accept that we voted for Brexit. And it must have been someone else's fault. Um, tell me how, how you respond to when people raise that point when you, to you. So, it, it, I mean, it's, I completely understand why people raise it and it, it's completely valid to raise it. But it's, when I started out on this story, I would, I would go into um, 
we'd have meetings at the Observer, and my colleagues, the editor, would say, well, you can't say that, when I'd say, you know, when I, I was making certain allegations. And I say, it's, it, it, this is electoral fraud. I mean, it's electoral <laughs> fraud. I, I can say that now, um, because, um, you know, some of those investigations have included. We know that there was massive overspending. And we know that the companies which are at the heart of the referendum are the same companies that were being used by the Trump campaign. And um, we know that Ambassador Yakovenko, who's the character who's at the heart of this question with Aaron Banks, has been named by Robert Mueller in... Um, well, he hasn't been named. He was, he was named as, well, I think it's Senior Diplomat One or something in um, his indictments uh, as, as a conduit... He's, he, his name is a conduit between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. And this, this is the person who is reaching out to Aaron Banks um, on the very day that Leave EU launched its official campaign. So I had this astonishing moment when we got hold of these emails. Um, it's with another journalist uh, called Peter Dukes. And he was very excited. He was like, I've got them, I've got them. Because we knew they were out there and we'd been trying to get hold of them. And um, I was reading, it was like late at night, and I was reading through them. And I just took a sharp intake of breath when I saw the date on this, because it's November the 17th, um, 2015. And I knew that date so well, because I've been staring and watching the video of Leave EU's launch, because um, the, 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 it was there, Aaron Banks was sitting next to this woman called Brittany Kaiser from Cambridge Analytica, and they had uh, uh, this uh, American analyst, uh, Jerry Gunster, there, who said, and he was the one who said, what we're going to do is we're going to do really clever stuff with data, because what you've got to do is follow the data. And that's kind of was, was my, my watchword from this. And then we got ourselves into this extraordinary situation. The reason why it's so familiar with that video is because of the 35-page legal letter we had to send <laughs> to Cambridge Analytica in their third attempt to sue us last year. And so what they... And it's so funny, actually, when I was cycling here tonight, down this street, and I was like, oh, there's the... So just about 100 yards away is the Pret-a-Manger, where I met Andy Wigmore, who is Aaron Banks's sidekick um, in January last year when he'd just come back from Trump's inauguration and was showing me, showing me the photos on, the, on, the, on his phone. You know, he was the guy who took the photos in front of the golden lift and things. And, um, he, you know, he just he set it all out about how, you know, they'd used Cambridge Analytica because they were, it was like, you know, Nigel was good friends with Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon said, you know, we've got this company and of course they should help you, we've got the same aims. And, and I was like, oh, right, so it was kind of, you know, what so they considered Brexit. And it's like, yeah, it's like a Petri dish for the, for the, for the US presidential election. And, um, sorry, I've just slightly lost my thread then. But it's a good thread. But it's, to come back to it, is that, to, which is a saying, so that day, that very day, they were then trotted off to the embassy where they sat down and this was the presentation they saw with the gold bars. And uh, I mean, it's just extraordinary. And what is more extraordinary and the thing which I'm really cross about is the fact that there, 
we don't know if there's any police investigation into this. So various MPs have been writing and trying to find out what the NCA are doing. And as far as we know, the NCA is doing nothing. I have a theory about the NCA that actually it's just a press office. Anyway. The, um, <laughs> and, um, no, yeah. I've, I've just I've got to bang on one more point. Yes. <laughs> I want to tell my NCA story. But go on. No, yeah, no, yeah. Okay, I'm just being boring. Okay, no, I'm going to say, I want to make sure that these amazing, wonderful people in the audience have got time to ask questions. But before I, I hand over the, the microphone to them, um, who should be doing something about this? And what should they be doing? I mean, there's, you know, multiple organisations, the Electric Commission, the Information Commissioner's Office, Parliamentary Committees, the NCA that you mentioned, obviously the Met, I suppose, other people. Who should be doing what? Well, we, Parliament, we, we uh, mandated an inquiry into this, the fake news inquiry, which is being, being conducted by the Select Committee for the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. They, they published their interim report two months ago, and they made a set of very, very clear recommendations. And remember, this is headed by a Conservative MP. So it's a Conservative MP who's trying to hold the government to account here. And he has said, right, we need to know what the intelligence services are doing. We need to know, you know what they knew and, and what's been going on. So we need to know if the NCA are investigating this. We need a whole new set of laws to protect our elections. So they, they, made, they made it, and he said, they said, we need a Mueller-style inquiry. Because... Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we desperately do because we have all these bodies, but they kind of don't have any power, and they're doing things that are odds with each other. Uh, and and the electoral commission—I mean, this is they're, they're civil servants who whose job is to, to to uphold these you know laws which are sort of hopeless at, in the face of this. So. He, as I say, a Conservative MP is the one who's... It's not me calling for that. And now we had, um, we've had Tom Watson from the Labour Party who's now backing that call. But this issue seems to have this no traction. It's, it's somehow it's seen as bad grace or bad form for, for me and others to bang on about the referendum. And... Um, uh, and I, I, I just... I, I sort of... I, I, and this is where I've been kind of depressed about what, what to do about this because it strikes me if we can't uphold our laws then you know if we don't have rule of law in Britain what do we have if we have if we don't have that confidence in our electoral system which we shouldn't have because we know multiple laws were broken then what do we have if we don't know that an outside uh, foreign actor didn't interfere in it so, I, I, mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't know. I, I would sort of love other people to suggest what we should do at this point because I've sort of hit my limits in a way. So, Luke, is this what Putin wants? Does he want us to look at our democracy and say, you know what, it's just a con, it's all a game, it doesn't, it's, there's no honesty in it? And is that, is that the end game? Is it to, to, make, to make us, everyone here, think that, that our politics is as rotten as, as his politics? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think P Putin is, I think you could describe him as the kind of world's nihilist in chief. His, his uh, goal ultimately is to suggest, um, well, it's to kind of, first of all, to occlude the truth so we don't really know what's going on. So with Skripal, 
Um, I mean, I think most people saw the two clowns uh, on TV on Russia Today saying they visited Salisbury because they were beguiled by the 123-meter-hall cathedral. And, and old Sarum. Uh, yeah, and old Sarum. <laughs> everyone forgets old Sarum. And, and they had to turn back because of the daunting slush uh, <laughs> and therefore return the next day. And in a way, you know, the, the Putin didn't really care whether you believe this or not. It's, it's a form of mockery. It's, it, actually, I, I wrote a book about Russia called Mafia State, but, but if I were to write a, a sequel now, I'd probably call it Troll State, because it, its diplomats, its government, its Ministry of Foreign Affairs are sort of trolling the world, and, and the, the, the overall idea is to um, spread hermeneutic confusion. So people, uh, first of all, don't really know what's true anymore, um, and, and secondly, um, arrive at a point where they regard their politicians, and indeed all politicians, as venal and contemptible, uh, and, on, on, and corrupt, and so on. Um, and um, and, and against this sort of, once you're on a platform of universal cynicism, it means that Russia can prevail, whether it's um, uh, in the Middle East or in Ukraine or, or economically or militarily or in its near abroad and so on. And, and so it's a pretty kind of dastardly project. But I, I just, just have to say I completely agree with Carol. We, we need a Mueller inquiry. I, I'm not saying we need the deep state to res- rescue us, but we need a proper, thorough, evidence-seeking, dispassionate... Um, investigation to see whether whether actually Russia, which always plays the margins, tried to push um, push 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 Brexit over the line, as it did actually with the Scottish independence vote as well. There was an enormous campaign. It, it involved data. It involved trolls. It involved cyber. It involved cultivation and conventional espionage. It involved dark money. Um, and maybe we get an inquiry, and then we conclude that actually. It didn't affect the result, but nonetheless, we need to ask these questions. And I can only sort of second Carol because it is dispiriting. We publish these stories. I mean, the one about the gold now in banks, I thought I would get a call from the BBC Today programme that I would be, like, interviewed, that we would make a big noise with this. Um, and the BBC is terrified about interrogating this. The BBC, they didn't ring. Uh, um, the public broadcast is not, interesting, not interested in it. We have Theresa May condoning Russian aggression over Skripal, but strangely mute over Brexit and, and dark money from outside. Um, we have a Labour Party too, which, with, the, with a few honourable exceptions, including Tom Watson, doesn't want to chase this down. And, and so we, we journalists, almost by default, are filling the civic space. Um, and, and, you know, we need and you. And we to it. <laughs> we, we need you. We need, our, we need your help. We need your enthusiasm. We need your ideas. We need your leaks, leaker stuff. Um, you know, we, we need, I don't know what we need, but, but we, we need a kind of team to try and work on this because at the moment, our politicians, our politics is failing. Mm. There you go. It's, it's a rallying call. It's actually worse than that because it isn't obviously just Russia and Putin looking to undermine our democracy. It's the wealthy and the powerful from all over the world. So, um, so if you were depressed by what Luke was saying, be more worried. But you know what? <laughs> Don't be worried. Don't be depressed. Be angry and be passionate and be engaged. Now, I think we have some microphones. We have a microphone there. Daisy's got a microphone. Do we, and, and there's another microphone there. Yes, there's a lady here. Yes. Hello, madam. Thank you. Uh, thank you. That was very interesting to listen. Please speak into the microphone. Oh, yes. Thank you. It was nice to listen to you. Um, now, first of all, I would like to say, why should I believe what Luke is saying? And um, for, because you are talking about fake news, and 
who said that everything you are saying today is not fake? That's first. Second, why you are uh, talking about only the money which is Russia um, putting into this country? Why you are not uh, you are not talking about Saudi Arabia money, which is so much of it in this country? And my only one thing that uh, you oh, talked okay. about, uh, we um, sorry. Because this is very important. It's the democracy here insulted. Yes? Sorry. It is um, the lady, sorry, I didn't get her name. Carol. Sorry. Carol. Uh, that the democracy here insulted by a lot of things, and I absolutely agree. The democracy here insulted long time ago, since the one million people went out to the, in the country against the war on Iraq, and nothing has been happened. And Iraq just. Okay, thank you. So, there's two, two important questions there. Actually, I think a good question. Um, the issue of should we be talking about not just Russian money, but also Saudi Arabian money, and, and presumably other money as well, is a very good one. And, Lou, why should we believe you? Well, I, I mean, you don't have to believe me. If you don't like The Guardian, you know, buy The Telegraph, or I would just say kind of um, spend money on news. We, we need your money. Yes. Journalism is in a very... Uh, parlous uh, place at the moment. Can we do, I, can I, we can do I, these complicated I, investigations, yeah. but but to, to answer it sort of seriously, of course, we we um, check everything we publish. We have a legal department. We do rights of reply. We have good method. Um, we correct if we get things wrong. Uh, we try and be scrupulous. We are not impeccable, um, but but generally, I think we we get it right. And I would just point to our, our track record in recent years with. Snowden, with Panama Papers, with Paradise Papers, with, with some of the most, I would say, argued some of the most important stories of the last decade. Okay. 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 Oh, I just wanted to say, I just wanted to say is that, um, the, you know, there was this sort of, the MSM became a term of abuse, didn't it, the mainstream media. And I, I have to say, I, I've come to this world of investigative reporting as a newbie and um, to, to, to realise the amount of work that goes into publishing this stuff. It is, you can't, you, you know, and we're up against people who just print lies. Aaron Banks, you know, um, Breitbart, uh, Westminster, they, they print untruths. And, and, and we, 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 what we are doing is we, you know, we have to have a really high test of evidence and we have to have had it really thoroughly legaled. And, and then there's still editorial decisions. So when we, when we, when we published it, there is, it's, it's, it's as good a process as we can do. And, and, and it feels that that's the only thing holding the line at the moment. And I, 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 kind of, I, I do feel it's, it's, that we are in the battle for truth. Uh, and the battle for news is really part of that, and you see that so clearly with what's going on with Trump. And so, 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 so yes, you should be cynical and inquiring about lots of things, but we, we do try our best, I think. Oliver, Oliver, can I ask you a question about your book as well and the impact of um, Moneyland on London in particular as a sort of you know, young person trying to buy a house and all this kind of thing. What is the impact on, on London? Well, I mean, it's sort of divine retribution that, that we invented it. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's, it's infested us so badly that no one can afford to live here anymore. 
I mean, it's really interesting if you read about London in the early 1960s when, when you know, our forefathers bravely invented offshore. It's amazing. You know, the, the city was full of bomb sites. There was, I mean, there, there's an amazing oral history of the city where people who would talk about how they worked for banks, they used to get on boats to Greenwich at lunchtime, drink beer all the way there, have a sandwich, and come back, drink beer all the way back. They'd take three hours off for lunch because there was <laughs> nothing to do. And that's what offshore did. It gave our city life and vitality and money, and sadly, it brought so much... <coughs> dodgy Russian, Saudi, and wherever else money that none of us can afford to live here anymore. And, and we do run kleptocracy tours uh, occasionally. Sadly, the man behind the kleptocracy tours, Roman, who's a friend, has gone to live abroad. So we don't have anyone who's prepared to organize hiring the bus at the moment. But when he comes back or when I get around to it, we will run more kleptocracy tours, and you're all invited, and we will show you where the money is, because it's all around us. It's not hiding. If you go around Eaton Square, I did actually a summary a sum on Eaton Square, the sheer number of properties held offshore just on Eaton Square, it's amazing. I mean, any name a country, any country with kleptocrats involved, we've got their money right here. Um, yes, let's have a question. There is a lady, a lady there, a man, a lady. This is exciting. A, lady, a man. <laughs> Hi there. Um, my name's Henry. I'm also an aspiring journalist myself. Uh, slightly different tack of question. Uh, just on using data to target voters. So an argument, a counter-argument that I see a lot of talking heads on the right using is that, well, how is this any different from the way the Obama re-election team in 2012, 2011 used their kind of voter targeting mechanisms, which were at the time very lauded by liberals as being you know, this amazing endeavour. What's the difference between then and now? That's a really interesting question. If, if as it were, the good guys do it, should we also be concerned about it? I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah, no, I know it, it's very valid, and I had it a lot last year um, when I was reporting about Cambridge Analytica. And the thing, they would say, yes, it's like everybody does it. And um, it's like advertising, it's like selling shampoo. And um, the, 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 the one thing that I, I always came back to was that, is that Cambridge Analytica, which was the company you know, that I was really focusing on, is that they're a military contractor. Um, and this technology was developed for warfare and um, it had been paid for by the British and American governments and, um, and they'd, they'd practiced with it on villages in Afghanistan and Iraq and um, they were using it alongside bombing them and it's the same techniques and methodology and technology which were then refined um, and turned on a domestic population, and I think that is different. We're, um, we're going to go right, it's quite wonderful, this hall, isn't it? It's like being in church. We're going to go all the way back. There's a lady at the back. Could you stand up, please, because I can only sit off your head. Hello. Hello. Um, how much do you think that Trump knew about Putin's involvement? Ooh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really super mischievous question, and I like it a lot. Um, uh, I mean, I think Trump's best defense at this stage, I mean, we know he tweets... 20,000 times a day saying it's a witch hunt, it's all fake, etc., etc. I think his best defense to, to the, 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 uh, so the kind of multiple evidence of, 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 of collusion and entanglement between people around him and, and Russia is that I am an idiot. Uh, I am an idiot. I had no idea that these Russians bringing me stuff, emails, dirt on Hillary, uh, you know, because uh, I'm a moron. Um, so, so there's the moron defence um, but the, the problem is the moron defence doesn't work you just have to look at, at, at Trump's 
um, long engagement with Russia. The, the fact is that I've talked to people in Moscow who were saying as early as, as, as the, the beginning of the 1990s, Trump was synonymous for people in Moscow as somewhere you could stash your money. So you stole in Russia, you bought a condominium in Trump Tower in cash, um, and, um, and, and that's how it worked. That's how you could move your, your money from, from Moneyland to, to a zone of kind of legality. And I write this in my book. I write that, that the Trump organization functioned as a, as a laundromat for, 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 for kind of illicit cash. And, you know, you'll note Donald Trump hasn't sued me. I mean, I think, and he sued everybody. Um, so, um, and, and, and so, so essentially, we've, we, we, we have this kind of long engagement uh, with him. I mean, everybody in his, in his initial administration practically had a Russia connection. Um, and, and so I think Trump is vexed by this. He has moments where he seems to be behaving almost like kind of King Lear in, increasingly. Um, the, the, the UN laughed at him today. Um, none of this means that he necessarily is going to be out of power very soon, but, but I think we have moved beyond collusion. Uh, and I think anybody who saw him with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki, when he was asked to condemn Russian interference, and he said, well, you know, Mr. Putin's given me assurances, and I'm sure nothing of the sort happens, uh, which was a jaw-dropping moment. And I think we're, we're now heading off towards treason. Oof, the T word. Um, there is a gentleman by the fourth... There he is. Hi there. Um, we seem to be in a bit of a chicken and egg scenario from what you're saying in that money buys power and power buys the ability to allow the facilitation of money laundering. Um, I work in financial crime for private banks, so I tend to go around crying most nights. Um, have you ever actually, in the course of your many, many investigations, seen the UK any anti-money laundering framework ever work? If not here, have you seen it elsewhere? That laugh says a lot. It's really, really interesting you should say that, because I'm actually working on a story at the moment about the UK's anti-money laundering architecture. And I've been talking to one of the regulators. We have, I think, 26 different anti-money laundering regulators in this country, one of which is very near here, just, just up towards the Houses of Parliament, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury's office. Um, uh, they regulate notaries public and have done since 1553. And I think that though I have absolutely nothing against the Archbishop of Canterbury, who I think is one of the few people to come out of the last two or three years with any kind of credit in this country in public <laughs> space, I don't think they should be in the anti-money laundering game. Um, um, and I think this speaks to what Carol was saying earlier, which is about the fact that our regulatory architecture... I mean, it may have been fit for purpose in the mid-16th century, but, I mean, notaries public, for all I know, were brilliantly regulated in 1553, but, I mean, it's just, you know, there's that thing on Twitter, there's that gif that does that. It's like, you know, what is this about? Um, anyway. Yeah, I, I, just, I just want to add, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to kind of snortle uh, your question. It's just that we keep publishing these investigations. I mean, I, I did one last year with the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project about the Russian laundromat. $20 billion uh, swooshed from, from Moscow via Moldova to the Baltics and then sprayed around the world. We found about $800 million being laundered in the UK, including by every single high street bank we all bank with. Uh, we had a, a, a vast groaning data set laying out all of the stuff in granular detail and we went to go and see the um, uh, National Crime Agency also not very far from here um, one of the 26 presumably and we said look we've got this enormous money laundering scheme there's, there's a huge British footprint um, would you like to take a look and, and we discussed it for a bit and then they said it's a bit difficult isn't it <laughs> 
That was the response to the National Crime Agency. It's a bit difficult, isn't it? And it's like, yeah, but you're the National Crime Agency. And if, you, if it's too difficult for you, if we, investigative journalists, can do it, what, what hope is there? And we talk to people in compliance, in private banks, and they say it's trying to kind of get across this stuff is like, is like being on a, on a fairground and playing whack-a-crock. Did anyone play whack a croc? Where this croc pops up, pops up, you hit it with a mallet, but four more crocs pop up. And there are soon so many crocs, you just can't whack them all. It's impossible. Um, and th- there is a lack of political will, there is a lack of seriousness, there's a lack of joint upness. Um, and w- we, we find egregious money laundering going on. We come across scheme after scheme after scheme that get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the UK and its corporate structures are absolutely at the heart of it. And there was a, there was a, a new story earlier at the end of last week about how the NCA is investigating one British limited liability partnership for involvement in money laundering out of the former Soviet Union. We've been reporting on LLPs laundering money out of the Soviet Union for what, eight years? I mean, they're not in a small way. You know, front page of newspapers, Private Eye has been, had special reports and, and nothing. It's, it's really, anyway, it's, it's enough to make you depressed. Um, <laughs> and there's a gentleman at the back who's going to cheer us up. Hello, sir. Oh, hello. Um, Many of us will have children at university at the moment looking forward to um, profitable careers in whatever future we turn out to have. Um, Many of them will be aspiring journalists or politicians, and I just wondered if you could um, lend them your experience and, and, and say that if you were starting off now... Would you seek careers in what they call mainstream journalism or, or, or what I like to think of as evidence-based journalism? Or would you be going through the door marked alternative? Carol. <laughs> um, it's really interesting. My answer to that has radically changed, I think, in the last few years. And uh, previously, I would have said, don't do it! <laughs> and don't do journalism. Don't do journalism. And it's... Because it's felt like we're in, we, we've been under assault. Our financial model was ruined by, by technology and we, we didn't come up with another one. And it was de- kind of depressing. Journalists are being l- laid off, you know. And I, I was always thinking about what's my, what am I going to take up, become a plumber? What am I going to do? But now I kind of, that is still true. But yet um, we need it. We need journalists so badly. We need journalism so badly. And we need news organisations so badly. that, um, And we need people to fight for that. And we need people to believe in that and to convey that. So if there are young people out there who want to do that, then I say go for it. And I applaud them every step of the way. And I will try and raise money and hope that you know, we can, we can revitalise the, the news industry. Because um, There's two things I'll say. One is, don't, if you have any, if you yourselves or your, any relatives or friends attempted to start out in journalism by working at one of these outfits like RT or Press TV, do not do that thing. Um, because if that is on your CV these days, it is, it is career death. And the other one is, if you don't subscribe to a newspaper, please do so. Do it now, on your <laughs> phone. Before, the, before I will let you out of this hall, you must subscribe to a newspaper. There is a lady right in front, Daisy. I do subscribe to a newspaper, yours, and I'm just wondering, listening to all of this, completely fascinating but depressing, do you think, now we're all thinking everybody's, you know, suspicious, it's because you are the guardian and seen as left-wing that the government is actually profiting by this money laundering and doesn't really mind about Russia, 
that they're not, it's not getting exposed. And a lot of the right-wing press doesn't really reveal it at all. You get a lot of criticism. And therefore, it's even more disappointing that parties on the left aren't supporting you. So as members of the general public, what can we do? Mm. I, I mean, I think, I think, I, I, I think um, we are getting more and more uh, traction. I mean, we published the Panama Papers in 2016. And actually, it was very weird because we, we, we were working on this project for a year in secret, in, in little Leninist cells all over the world, full of investigative journalists who communicated via, via pigeons and encrypted email and ha had clandestine meetings. And we didn't know what the result would be. And actually, we now know that David Cameron almost resigned. He had a torrid time. Uh, the, the story was picked up. Actually, for once, it was the front page of the Express, the Mirror, the Telegraph, everybody else. And, and actually, there have been changes beyond the Prime Minister of Iceland resigning or uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan being jailed. Um, there was a very heartening uh, cross-party amendment, which was, was authored by Margaret Hodge, but also had support from notable Conservatives as well, to try and de-anonymise offshore companies in, in British former colonies. Um, and so we are making, we are making some uh, progress, I think. And I think the other thing, actually, even if our stories are not always kind of uh, followed up by everyone else, is what we have done is create a climate of psychological um, anxiety or unease for the super-rich because they hide their stuff and then Oliver writes about them uh, in his book. I write about them in The Guardian. And it's kind of embarrassing to the point where you sort of think if you're worth, you know, X hundred million, maybe you pay more tax and you avoid that. So um, we haven't won. But, but I think, I think we, are, we are actually finally making something of a difference. It should be said, though Nawaz Sharif, the former Prime Minister of Pakistan, has been convicted in Pakistan. He's not in jail because he's in London. Um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, I forgot. There was a court proceeding in Pakistan um, where he was convicted of corruption. There was no court proceeding in the British Virgin Islands where his four shell companies were, and there has been no court proceeding in London where his property is. And that is the problem, in that we look at corruption as something that happens in places where people have darker skin than us and not as something that happens here. And that is here, here. wrong. Mm. Um, there is, we have a microphone. Yes, so this, this may be our last question. Well, we, so please keep it brief and we can try and get another one because so many hands are up and they're all so beautiful. Um, hi. Uh, you talk about greater regulation and kind of poignantly, at least consolidated regulation, poignantly the um, warrant powers under the Investigatory Powers Act come into force tomorrow. Um, do you think greater government oversight is as much as a danger as not having as much oversight? That's an interesting question. I mean, government oversight of the internet, should we be, you know, at the moment we're saying we want more of it, but actually, is that a problem in and of itself? Well, I think, I think, I think um, legitimate and um, uh, legal oversights um, it, transparent um, oversight is completely vital and um, the only thing which worries me now the thing, <laughs> the thing which worries me now is that the way that I can see the right sort of weaponising that argument and, um, and I, I do wonder what's going to happen there Donald Trump has now started saying it and Nigel Farage has started saying it and um, so it does, it, does, it, does, it does worry me that the way that they've co-opted um, this story to, for their own propaganda means. 
Though there was a great line from George Orwell, just because something's in the Daily Telegraph doesn't mean it's not necessarily true. <laughs> um, we have a time for one question. Jess, could you stand up, please, ma'am? Um, behind all this money laundering, there are human beings in these banks who are doing this work. Many people in this room may even know these people, senior bankers maybe in Deutsche Bank who are aware of that massive chunk of cash that went to Trump. Do you think these people are actually aware of the negative and toxic consequences of what they're doing? Are they just going through blithely? Um, are you, is there any way to kind of appeal to their sense of, of um, you know, right and wrong in this? It's <laughs> a really good question. Um, I, I, obviously, they're not monsters. Um, no one is, really, hardly, right? Um, but I think it's very difficult to persuade someone of the virtues of a course of action that might cost them their job. So I don't think it's worth relying on bankers to regulate or improve themselves any more than it's worth relying on, you know, I don't know, journalists to regulate or improve themselves. I think it's always good to have transparent external oversight of almost anything because it, it keeps everyone honest. So no, I mean, I think, you know, we, we tried that before 2008. We, we tried self-regulation of, of all sorts of things. We're still trying it you know, or, or the Archbishop of Canterbury is involved, or whoever, um, it doesn't work. Um, we need, democracy is a, is a great idea, and, and I mean, it, and I think we need to, to, to expand it and improve on it, because, because we are, we are an, an imminent threat of, of losing it because of this tide of dirty money. Um, we, are, we are now, it is now 8.16, and I'm one minute overdue, and I'll probably, Daisy will, will slaughter me. Um, but I do want to remind you of what I said at the beginning, uh, J.K. Rowling, the sage of our time, Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. Um, you can see where I keep my brain. Um, it's just here you know, under my hair. Um, Luke will be signing his books outside. Um, trust me when I say it's an excellent book. I think I reviewed it last year. It's very good. I'll also be signing mine. Um, also an excellent book. Also apparently very good. Um, yeah. Please join me in, well, in thanking these two wonderful people. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Oh, we're not supposed to